This is the Embrace the Messy podcast. I'm Shannon Schinkel. I'm a high school educator, challenge seeker, lifelong learner, and embracer of all things messy. I find my inspiration from individuals who are passionate about learning and embracing change. Join me as I share my own experiences and interview people who will inspire you to embrace the messy too. One day in early 2019, I was reflecting on some acting I had done with a local theater company. And after having experienced a very difficult start to the new year, dealing with the loss of a colleague who passed away quite suddenly, I had a life is too short, I'm going to do some acting again moment. and decided to peruse the theater company's Facebook page for upcoming shows once again. Lo and behold, they were in the midst of holding auditions for a play called Appointment with Death by Agatha Christie. Ooh, a mystery, I thought to myself. Cool. So I announced to my husband that I was going to go check out the play and if I auditioned for any parts, now remembering that I am a 40-something woman, maybe the play that they were auditioning for was littered with 20 or 30-something parts and there would be nothing for me. So I told him I would only audition for a minor role, you know, just a wee part, something to chew on, something to sink my acting teeth into. It can't hurt to even just go and check it out. Maybe the play will be dumb, or the dates of the show might not jive with all of our schedules. Famous last words. I walked back into my house at about 9 p.m. with a mischievous, almost Cheshire cat grin on my face. I sat down on the couch and told my husband that I was pretty sure I just landed the part of the deliciously wicked Mrs. Boynton, and that it was not a small part. It was, in fact, the villain. So it wasn't a wee part and it had a substantial number of lines. It was also very serious and I had to be on stage for two acts before I croaked but it was incredibly creepy and juicy and I had never done anything like it before. So of course I wanted to do it. I added that I had nailed the audition, impressed the directors and I knew the part was mine even though I hadn't formally been offered it. I know that sounds really cocky but you know what sometimes you just really know. Plus, I felt that only I could do the part, and it just had to be me and no one else. Okay, that does sound a little cocky when I think about it, but I was really excited. I was also crapping my pants about it at the same time. I pretty much said it just like that to my husband, maybe with a sprinkling of profanity. Given my excitement, you get the idea. Now, at the time of this one-sided conversation with my husband, understand that he and I have been married for almost 21 years. And he knows from experience that when it comes to me getting excited about doing something new, anything new, not stand in my way. In fact, he always tells me to go for it. And he did. A day or two later, I got the call from one of the directors that the part was mine. And I agreed to take it. And so began the exciting experience of juggling a major part in a play, multiple rehearsals per week, and memorizing lines with running an extracurricular secondary assessment learning team, teaching two English classes and one drama 10 class, which included their own show, which was scheduled for just three weeks before appointment with death's opening night. And I know I'm missing something else. Oh yeah, being a mom to a 19 and a 14 year old who still, of course, live at home. 
what could possibly go wrong? Lots did. But thanks to my supportive family, including my parents and in-laws, it all worked out. Mrs. Boynton was an incredible part to play. The cast, spectacular. The directors, kind and brilliant. The venue was scorching hot in June when we presented, and so wearing polyester from the top of my head to my toes was not fun. But the show got rave reviews, so it was all worth it. I learned so much doing this play. I've gotten too comfortable, I realized, as the director of students. Being on stage again, I, I had to learn to switch gears and become the student on stage and take direction from someone who isn't me. Now, it was a difficult transition at first because I wanted to be in control. I found myself offering my own suggestions to the directors and given I was one of the more, quote, senior actors in rehearsals, the directors humored me, but I could tell it made them and the cast a bit uncomfortable. So before it caused a rift early on, I just decided to button my lips, you know, ask questions to support my learning of the part and take direction like I should. Acting helped me learn about juggling everything that is important in my life. Work, motherhood house chores, my kids' activities, my husband's stuff. I wouldn't say I was indifferent to my students' feelings, the students I teach, but while working on the play, I definitely made a more conscious effort to be more empathetic about their responsibilities and realized that I really shouldn't compare my level of responsibility to theirs just because I'm an adult. You know, when we hear ourselves say you know in the real world you know I really I really couldn't justify it um, I, I started having more conversations with students about what they do outside the classroom I learned they have a lot on their own plates some are caregivers to younger siblings some play amateur and competitive sports some lead and participate in clubs go on trips have jobs and then they have homework and they have to study for tests and they're applying to colleges and universities and they've got relationships and that's all in addition to the invisible trauma some of them carry. I learned to be empathetic because I too carry trauma onto the set of Appointment with Death. I shed many tears after my extraordinary colleague passed away but I never really addressed the impact it had on me. And I chose to hide from it by keeping myself busy and doing the show. And on the final night of the show, another colleague and friend who had been battling cancer passed away. Two colleagues within a span of just six months. By the time the dust of the final show settled, I was mentally and physically exhausted and I wound up at the doctor's. She put me on medical leave and my summer holidays started early for me and I also began counseling much needed counseling and I'm so grateful that I finally got the courage to ask for help but my privilege made it easy to access this support I also realized going through this 
process that many of my students don't have that luxury. They come to school wearing backpacks filled to the brim, not with textbooks and worksheets, but with stress, anxiety, depression, bullying, dependence, violence, and the list goes on. There are supports available at school that they can access, but it's still so hard for them to seek out or want help. They're kids. Through all this, I realize empathy is really easy. You know, look at students as humans with big lives and lots on our plate, on their plates. Talk to them about what they are trying to balance. Acknowledge them, see them, hear them. Recognize there is also a lot we don't see in here. The ultimate form of compassion is to sit in the dark with them. Feel your own pain as an individual and don't try to fix them. Empathy is a tool of compassion. Meaningful connection requires this combination. Brene Brown taught me that. I have no regrets about playing Mrs. Boynton and being in Appointment with Death. It was a blast because that experience also taught me so much about what it means to be a student of acting again and how I need to remember that struggle so I can empathize with my students when they are preparing for their own shows. Now, some might say that doing that show was a mistake because it plunged my mental health into a dark place, but I think if I had not done the show, I would most definitely have done something else to try and mask my pain. That's just where I was in the experience. And then I wouldn't have gained the experience I appreciate now as a director. The experience brought me to a sort of self-awareness, which led me to an amazing counselor who supported my journey. So instead of regretting that experience, I am grateful for the gifts it gave me. I got to know myself. My journey of self-awareness includes mindfulness and self-compassion. Lisa Bayless is an expert in these areas. She is the author of a fabulous resource called Self-Compassion for Educators. She is a mother, former teacher and school counselor, and now works as a facilitator. She runs workshops and retreats to support educators. Meeting Lisa last year and reading her book came at a time when I really needed both. And maybe after hearing this conversation, you'll find you might need her too. Here's my conversation with Lisa Davis. Hello, Lisa Bayless. Welcome to the Embrace the Messy podcast. Oh, Shannon, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so thrilled. I just wanted to say, you know, before we get started in all of our questions, you and I met last October when we were both at the same conference and I had already been a fan of your work following you on Twitter. And I remember kind of, you know, approaching you and, you know, are you Lisa Baylor's and we got to talking and over I'm just going to say like over the course of those two days being at the conference with you you know I just I got this sense you're such a thoughtful and present person and I really Mm. think that you came into my life at a time when I needed it Mm. so you know listening Mm. to what your passion is about mindfulness and self-compassion has had a huge impact on me. So I just wanted to say thank you. 
Oh, well, thank you for like starting that, getting me on a little bit theory here and, and recognizing that, well, and I, I was just going to say, I appreciate that because if that has an impact for you, then I know that's having an impact on all the people that you're in connected with. So the ripples are so big when we start to have an connection to these practices and a connection to how we are in our own presence, it can have such an impact outward around us. So mm-hmm. I am so grateful for your words. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And before we get into, you know, addressing everything about self-compassion and mindfulness, I'm particularly fa- um, fascinated by origin stories. So I know that you are an educator, but I also know that mm. you've taken great strides to actually have this, um, your own personal practice of sharing mindfulness and self-compassion. If you could just tell me a little bit about um, that journey. Yeah, well, I mean, I never wanted to be an educator. I'll start with that. I had I came from two parents who were both teachers, and I remember going to the university and swearing I would never be a teacher. Um, but it's a calling, isn't it? And I knew very quickly as I explored so many other things that what I loved to do was to to facilitate, to guide, to connect with people. There's such a heartfelt pull um, and education so aligned with all the things that I love to do and the gifts that I wanted to share and how I wanted to connect. And so I went into education. I actually have a PE degree. It was my undergrad as a PE teacher, just like my dad, who was also a PE teacher. Um, and I've never, ever taught PE. I've had one of those, you know, journeys in education where I've tried so many other things and taught many different things. And when I did my master's in counseling, and I also always knew I I really had a desire to work with vulnerable, vulnerable youth, and which is why I did my master's in counseling. I had a desire, but a connection, like I knew I could make a difference that way. And so um, I, I made the space to do my master's in counseling so I could sit in the hard and sit in the difficult and sit with the suffering and learn how to do that. And during that time, I also had my own children. And it was actually during my own, as a, as, you know, my journey to this mindfulness, compassion, teacher well-being, which was really where I started, was more as a mom than a than as a teacher. My my journey really started as I was watching 2014. And those of you who remember who were in BC in 2014, we were picketing in September, and I remember not going back to school that September and watching how, you know, defeated my colleagues were feeling and how devastated we were through that month and how hard it was and and walking back into my workroom and meeting up with these teachers who were just so exhausted before the school year restarted mm-hmm. and September the like new boots new pencils new shoes and like fresh class and there's an energy that came into it and I really noticed that year that that didn't exist and the reason it impacted me so much as a parent was my son was about to start kindergarten the next year. So they were really little still. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how do I send my babies into a system where our educators are so exhausted, so overwhelmed, so underappreciated? And so I started standing on any roof I could to talk about educator well-being. And, and during my this journey towards talking about teacher well-being, I really had to grow my own practice of presence, of mindfulness, because I was turned down quite a lot. It was often said, we're not in the business of educators, we're in the business of kids. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're here to support the students. You know, teachers can do well-being on their own time. It's not something that happens in the classroom. And I had a really different view at the time. And 
Um, one of the good things that came out of COVID was the shift to actually our presence matters in the classroom. We noticed that through how we had to show up on Zoom and how we had to show up with masks and how we had to show up so many different ways. And we saw this growth even more in, in burnout. And so, you know, each time something in our world has happened has impacted my journey. Um, but, you know, I think most of the work that I've done is because I want to show up with presence and I wanted to make a difference for my kids. So, you know, when my son will graduate in five years from now, he's still pretty little, but my hope is by the time he graduates that educator well-being is something that's like foundational to every school's expectations. And that's been the journey I've been on for the last, you know, 10 years. And I'm going to keep talking it. Yeah, no, I, I I could agree more. I'm I'm really passionate about all of the work that Dr. Jody Carrington does, and she says uh, a lot of what you are saying. And you know, the teachers are the ones she says you know that are um, trying to manage all the ba all of our babies. You know, and if we're not yeah. taking care of the teachers, how are they supposed to take care of these kids? Right. Yeah. It's it's the connection piece that's just so incredibly important for all of our all of our mental health. Right. Totally. So totally. When we talk about like using the language of mindfulness and self-compassion, I know sometimes other language is is interchanged. Right. So how would how what's a good working definition for the term mindfulness and self-compassion? Totally. And I, I appreciate just making sure that we understand what we're talking about, because there are also, you know, these keywords and, and like most keywords or, or big concepts, it's like, okay, it's really hot right now. And then it's going to pass through and we're going to talk right. about something different. Right. And, right. 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 I love that you referred to Jody because Jody really talks about this opportunity for connection. And, and what I like to talk about is the work that I do with mindfulness and self-compassion is, is the, how do we do what she's talking about? Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. here's the practices. Um, mindfulness and self-compassion are practices. They're not a one-off kind of thing that you can learn. I like to think of mindfulness um, as the definition of, of just being aware of what's going on around you and within you at any given moment. That's the simplified definition. It's paying attention with intention to grow your awareness. This is sort of what we're doing. And you can't be like, okay, I'm aware. And I've done that check. I'm good forever. It is, it is like anything. Mindfulness is an ongoing practice. You know, people who've been doing it for decades go, I still need to show up to my practice because it's so easy. It's like saying it's so, it's so easy for it to disappear. It's like saying I go to the gym and I lift my weights and it's like, oh, I got it. I'm good for life. You know, you can't do a bicep curl and think your biceps are going to be strong forever. Mindfulness is a training of our brain to grow our attention to grow within that intention to expand our awareness. So that's what mindfulness is. That's, that's how I would define it. It's different than meditation is often a word we hear. Meditation is, mm -hmm. is sort of the formal practice. It's the, it's the choosing to sit in practice. Mindfulness is sort of like a greater awareness. Are we aware of what's happening? Are we aware of what's going on around us? Are we paying attention to what's going on within us? And it can be short micro practices. They can be very, very small. Self-compassion by definition, and I love, this is my favorite, Chris, Dr. Kristen Neff is one of my teachers and, and colleagues talks about how, you know, self-compassion is simply treating ourselves the way we would treat a dear friend, 
for our students, our colleagues. Mm-hmm. And I often think about like, how do you talk to your dog, right? Like yeah. <laughs> your, your, your baby, like, oh, you're such a good thing. Can we turn that yeah. loving awareness back to ourselves? And that's much easier said than done. We are not mm-hmm. conditioned often to talk to ourselves that way. And self-compassion has three components when we're talking about it. The first is this piece around mindfulness because we have to know what's going on. And I'll tell you, compassion, compassion for definition means I recognize that there's suffering and I will have this desire to alleviate it. Like there's something going on out there and there's this warmth in my heart that wants to help. Educated and naturally compassionate people. We see, we see when people struggle, we're like, how can we help? What can I do? Right? This is where we come from. Self-compassion says, this one too, like I recognize there's suffering or hurt, stress, struggle, and I want to alleviate it. I want to support it for myself. So we need mindfulness to pay attention to that. That's why that's mm-hmm. the component of self-compassion. Another component of self-compassion is the practice of something we call common humanity, which is this beautiful awareness that, hey, life is messy. We're all in it, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. we may have different stories. We may have different experiences, but our emotions, our feelings, they're all valid. We all understand them. There's this real, um, perfectly imperfect being of being human. And I just mm-hmm. love that. I think it also is a really great place for educators because it we work so often in silos. It gives us that permission to, you know, recognize that, hey, we're 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 may not have the same class this year, we may not have the same experience, but hey, I get you. I get you and I got you, right? Like mm-hmm. what a lovely practice. And then the third component of self-compassion is that. We call it loving kindness, but it's just that like warm, caring tone. And it can be tender and it can be fierce. It can be soft and gentle. And sometimes it can be like, I got this, right? Like it can be, it can also have this fierceness to it. So self-compassion, can I, can I meet myself the way I would meet my students? Can I have that same gentle, caring, loving tone and get rid of that criticism? Mindfulness, can I pay attention to this moment? Am I here? Am I actually noticing the good, the bad, and the ugly? Mm-hmm. I, so my big takeaway is just, just listening to you is if I were to go to a day-long workshop and I call, you know, which is often what's, you know, implemented so that, you know, schools and districts can say, well, yes, we're taking care of our teachers, that one-off event isn't enough there has to be something as you said when you have to sit with intention there has to be something actually intentional that we bring into like to make a practice of it it's like like brushing our teeth like right like totally washing our face right that kind of and I think that's the difference between knowing and embodying or knowing and being so that's where I like to bring my practices everyone knows this we know why right like we're pretty head-centered educators are we get it like I can come into a room and spend a, an hour a day you know a workshop and talk about why mindfulness is important and people can go yep 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 I get it mm-hmm. I totally understand it I, like I know that I'm going to do it right it's like it's like New Year's you know every year like, I'm going to exercise this year and we get two or three weeks in and then we fall apart mindfulness is the same thing like we want to start small and have great successes over and over and over again so it becomes integrated into our classroom and into our life if we know it, but don't embody it, it's a very, very different experience. 
So how do we move then? Because teachers are, you know, they're so selfless. They're already so compassionate. They love their students. Like I, I tell my students, I love them, you know, mm-hmm. and how do we move them from thinking that mindfulness and self-compassion is this self-indulgent behavior mm-hmm. that, you know, there, you know, there's not enough, not enough time in the day. How do we move from that? Yeah, I love that. You know, there's actually, we talk about some of the myths of self-compassion and self-indulgence, that the fact that it's selfish is one of them, right? You know, it, it's that that reminder, just like we're on an airplane, you put your own mask on first, right? And again, we know this is educators. Oh, yeah, 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 I got this. Like, yes, I know I need to care for myself. What I always say to people is that start really small, like start yeah. with just modeling it for yourself, for your students. You don't need to do, and, and I share my own experience. The first time I was really like, I'd been sort of having a lifelong practice of mindfulness, but the first time I wanted to meditate, I went in and I sat, I was like, I'm going to do a 30 minute meditation. Within two minutes, I was like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to <laughs> I'm me. Out. Yeah. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> there was so much discomfort and and, you know, self-compassion meets that. And I didn't have a self-compassion practice at the time. Now I know it's like self-compassion meets that discomfort and goes, okay, honey, you're all right. Like you can do this. So, you know, what I often remind teachers is, is like the first step is just starting to acknowledge, right? Like, oh, this is a difficult moment. Or I just going to take a big, deep breath to slow myself down. I give myself permission to just check in and notice and actually not get caught up. So mindfulness allows us to not get caught up in the the storytelling we tell ourselves, the ruminating, Mm -hmm. you know, the Mm -hmm. conversations we have with people who aren't even in the room with us, right? Like how good are we at winning arguments with the people in our heads, right? And so mindfulness says, okay, darling, like just you're in it. And, And this is a human, we all do it. And I think this is what people think we're going to start mindfulness, all that's going to go away. It's not a fix. There's no magic wand. There's no like I've done mindfulness. I'm I'm ultimately healed. Like I've been doing this practice for decades, and I still, you know, ruminate. My head goes in. I argue mm-hmm. with people in my head, and then I'll, yeah. now what I do is I go, oh, oh, look at me go, and I, and I sort of invite that, like, okay, Donna, take a deep breath, come on back, because this is not serving you in this moment. Mm -hmm. So I think what I like to tell educators is like, you don't have to start with 30 minutes on a cushion, start with taking two minutes. The next time you're walking from your classroom to the photocopy machine, take three big breaths and notice your feet as you're walking from one place to another. When the paper comes out of the machine, just take a minute, notice how warm it is and actually acknowledge, drop your shoulders, soften, Mm -hmm. you know, take in as many moments, find words that remind you to just be present. So for me, words like slow down, dear one, or just take a deep breath or trust this moment, you're okay. Like sometimes these words of encouragement, again, the things that we might say to our little ones, to our students, right? Think about the voice that naturally comes out and how you would meet a student. If they were anxious and overwhelmed and coming in, you'd be like, okay, I got you. Mm-hmm. It's right. that like, can we say that to ourselves a little bit? Can we just start with that little bit of acknowledgement? And then you know, practice, find a course, do this work. Yes, one-off isn't going to help, but ongoing community of practice does make a huge difference. Yeah. I I love how you've already mentioned that 
it's about taking those baby steps. Um, one of the books that I've read that has been a game changer for me in the last year is the book Atomic Habits by yeah. James Clear. I love that book. I am sharing it. And it's all about framing for those folks who have not heard of this book. It is about framing the language that we say to ourselves instead of saying, I'm going to be a person who does, you know, meditation or mindfulness or something like that for 30 minutes. Like you said, it's, I'm a person who practices mindfulness, just like I'm a person who reads. I'm a person who exercises instead of actually putting a number on it, like some kind of, you know, piece of data. What ends up happening is it's okay if you're only on the treadmill for a minute or two. Because this is how we start the habit. It's okay if mindfulness, um, you know, only lasts 30 seconds and then, and you attach it to something else within your day. So it becomes instead of just, you know, kind of a random thing, you know, it's like I said, like I said, you know, reading a book, you know, maybe you, you brush your teeth, you crawl into bed, you read your book, and then you go to, you know, you, you have to attach it to something. So, so I love that. And that's the language I've adopted. I'm a person who you know, is trying to take care of my, my mental health, take care of myself, be self-compassionate. I keep kind of saying that to myself and it's okay if it's a little bit, because that's how you formulate the habit and that's how it it winds up growing. And now I find myself, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I've got the calm app because I love Mm -hmm. the guided, um, you know, that guided the mindfulness, Mm -hmm. you know, whether Mm -hmm. it's like a body scan or, and I love someone bossing me around, right. (laughs) That just, (laughs) It works for me because just on my own, you know, I'm worried about where the cat is, you know, because, you know, I'm worried about all the, what was my nose itching? And I love that, that guided. And, and now, you know, I've worked up from being only a couple of minutes where it's just driving me crazy to, you know, I can sit for about 15 minutes and I do think, oh, wow, I'd love to be able to be like, you know, eat, pray, love and be able to, you know, meditate for like an hour, you know, but it's like, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm noticing um, it in my heart that it's, it feels good. It makes you feel yeah, lighter, I, right? It, oh, I love that word lighter because I think what it does is it, it, you know, I think we all crave stillness these days. We all crave a little bit more spaciousness and, and quiet. We, we glorify busyness all the time. And so, you know, and then yet when we sit in stillness, it's really hard. And the other thing I'll tell you is the reason mindfulness, self-compassion, especially is a practice is, the more we practice it when we are okay, like you say, you know, I find a few minutes or while I'm brushing my teeth, I just brush my teeth, right? I have a, I have a friend who I always laugh. He's like, when you're in the shower, can you just be in the shower or who's in the shower with you? Right? Like I sometimes we wash our hair and have an argument with our spouse or our colleague. And we're like, like, who's in the shower with you? Can you just do one thing? But I, I love the idea that when we start these little micro practices or use an app, like the daily calm that they have or the different practices on there, what they're doing, every time you do those, you are starting to retrain the brain pathways, right? Like it's like a marathon runner doesn't start and go for a 40 K run the very first time they start with one kilometer, they start little, right? Mm -hmm. And then your brain and your body starts to know what to do. So when we start little, and this is what I love about James Clear's Atomic Habits too, is it's like these micro things start to gain over time. So we're not sitting to practice because we need to get it all now. We're like starting because this is a lifelong journey. Like this is not something that just we do now to fix. It's a 
I'm going to start this because it's going to support me next week, next year, 10 years for the rest of my life. And when we practice it, when the really hard things do come up, we've started to integrate it into our brain. So then we know how to access it. So, you know, in those moments that are really hard, and we all have them, it's one thing with inevitable, like we are going to suffer. We're going to experience pain, heartbreak, loss, grief anger, right? Like these are human experiences. So when we practice, we can attend and attune to them with a little bit more ease each time. And I say this with two educators because you cannot go through your career. You can't go through a week. Man, I don't think I went through a day as an educator where I didn't have a moment of frustration or rage. Like there are great days. And then there are moments of like, what is wrong with this system? What is wrong with this child? What is wrong with this colleague? Why is this happening? Why can't I do we have these experiences. So we practice the when those shitty moments happen, we go, mm. oh, right, I've got this, or I can do it, or yeah. take yeah. a breath, dear one, because this is part of one moment in time. This is not all consuming. And most pain, most suffering, stress feels all consuming because our body and our brain wants it to. So our practice helps us to remember to slow down and, and be present with just what's here because the next moment might not be so all consuming. Mm-hmm. No, I, I I love that. Let's um let's talk about your book. I know we've already mm. referred to it a little bit there. So uh, for listeners, Lisa's book is called Self Compassion for Educators. And after you and I met, of course, I had to go and buy it. In your book, you refer to something called the AWE method, and it's yeah. an acronym A W E. Can you share with listeners what that is? Yeah, the almost that came long before the book, and it was really where I was starting with um, talking about teacher well-being. It stands for awakening the well-being of educators. And, you know, there's this whole movement about being woke these days. And I think this this came along long before that. But what reminded me, or when we started this, this awe movement, and was we were doing awe retreats, and it was like, hey, educators, you have the components of wellness within you, we just need to remind it. We need to wake it up. We need to bring it back to you. We need to put it at the forefront and we need to give you permission that you matter enough to take care of you. And yes, your students are important. And yes, we love them. But if you can't show up present, if you can't show up in your full self, they're going to have an impact with that too. Because as we started with, you know, like you practice this, it's going to have a ripple effect of goodness out. Emotions are contagious. We know this, right? We know how we show up has an impact on people. We all know what it's like to be in a good mood and walk into a staff meeting or a staff room mm-hmm. and have a very different vibe there and be like, whoa, okay, right? Like, I just want all of your negative vibe, right? So what the awe movement, the awe process was really about how do we awaken the wellness, the goodness, the reminder that, you know, our, our presence matters. And, you know, it came in from talking about it to creating a book about it. And, and the book's all about the why, the how, and the what, right? Like, why mm-hmm. do we need this? How do we do it? And what are you going to do to continue it through your life? Mm-hmm. I, I love the balance in your book because to me, it felt like I could, at my own pace, work through it almost like I was taking a course and I've taken your course, right? Your <laughs> Courageous Compassion for Educators. I've taken your the workshop series or the course. But what I also like is the structure of your book, because you do have the why and the how. You have the research, which I think people crave. But then you also 
integrate these wonderful moments of self-reflection where someone can either just think to themselves or they can write. And then you've also got a series of all of these wonderful practices that you're not suggesting you have to do all of them, but, you know, take them out for a spin. Which one feels good to you as you're reading this book, right? Mm. Was that, tell me a little bit about that being important to you when you constructed the book. Oh my gosh. The fact that you just said that was exactly my intention. So I'm so glad that's how it landed. You know, when I went out to write the book, one, I I wanted to bring the concepts of self-compassion into the world, but I wanted to, for educators, and I wanted to also um, give people permission to recognize their well-being from a a practice of self-compassion. And what what I felt like when I had been doing my research and when I'd been reading was most of the books around teacher well-being that I had seen out there felt like textbooks. Like you go to pick them up and they were just heavy and big and full. I would pick them up and get overwhelmed. And I thought, I want to write a book that people want to hold in their hands. But even just holding it and they open it gently, they feel a sense of warmth and ease. Like what we don't need is when people are overwhelmed to add a layer of overwhelm to get started. I wanted it to be easy. So I wrote it with an intentionality of being easy, accessible, full of stories from educators, from my own experience, with this invitation to sort of read it with a buddy and then answer the questions as reflections at the end of every chapter. It's just like, pause. You don't have to read this book quickly. I love, I'm a big reader and I'm, I'm a, I'm a binge reader. I say my husband laughs at me because I'll start reading a book and it's like, well, Lisa's reading a book now. Don't talk to her for the day because once (laughs) I'm in, I'm like in it. (laughs) But what I wanted for this book was to be more of like, you can put it down and just sit with what was there. Mm-hmm. Or you can read through it all and enjoy it and not even touch the practices and just enjoy the stories and go back. And it, it needed to be for me where people found what worked for them. Not everything's going to mm-hmm. work for everyone. And I think sometimes the books are like, you have to do all these things. And I, I really wanted it to be like, try these hats on and what works for you. Because then do more of that. Don't try something that doesn't feel good and try and force ourselves through it. That is not self-compassionate. Compassionate says our whole body when we do it goes, oh, thank you. Oh, right. That's what I needed in this moment. And so if there's one practice in that, all like there's over 30 practices in the book. If there's even one that you find and your whole body goes, oh, that's just what I needed. Mm-hmm. That's it. Stick with yeah. that. Do it over and over again. I love how it's it's like a little bit of a reference book too. And it's so accessible. I find myself grabbing it. One of the things that has struck me actually while reading it with some some of the practices is especially with educators trying to become more trauma-informed with our students is I found myself while I was reading it, thinking about how can I connect my students to these practices? And I think, you know, our kids are having such a tough time, especially, you know, post COVID, you know, I, I see it a lot as a high school teacher, especially when, you know, kids move from the elementary setting into high school, they're, they're trying to manage all of this. And I find myself again, looking at some of your practices and thinking about how can I integrate some of these practices with my students? How can I model for students that I'm being self-compassionate, I'm being mindful so that they can be mindful as well? Was that 
part anywhere in the intention of the book as well? I think, well, for me, the intention was definitely start with you first. And right. the reason I say that is I've been teaching mindfulness and self-compassion educators for many years. And most teachers come saying, how do I teach this to my kids? Because this is who okay. we are, right? Mm -hmm. And what I've learned over years of trying to get, no, trying to invite people to want to bring it to the classroom is that when they embody it themselves, it is more authentic for our students and kids smell authenticity. They know whether you, you know, like they know it. They and get so, a read on us big time. Totally, yep. 100%. So, and we can't force people to be mindful. We can, we can, we can invite them to try it, even with little kids, you know, from like I started little practices with my kids who, my own kids, when they were two or three, and my son, I bless his heart, still says to me, Mom, mindfulness is your thing. It's not mine. But then he'll lie down and he'll be like, you know, mom, can you do that body scan with me to help my body to sleep? Or can we, you know, so there's never a, we have to, we never want to sort of push it on kids. So what I've learned because we want mindfulness to be an invitation is when we model it, kids actually feel like it's uh, something that we can experience. So mm -hmm. I often say to educators, when you are struggling or you walk into your classroom and everybody's up here and say like, hey, folks, it's a lot right now. For me personally, I'm just going to take a big, deep breath and I'm just going to slow myself down. If you'd like to do this with me, you can. If not, can you just, let's all take a moment to settle this room. And I find when I take a big breath, it helps me settle. So, you know, you do what you need to do, but let's arrive here together, right? It's just simple languaging around how we model it for ourselves. Or when we make a mistake, we don't berate ourselves. We're like, oh, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I did this. With our kids, we say, Oh, right. Mistakes happen. All right, darling. Well, you know what? I made a mistake right now. I, you know, like that's okay. Mistakes are part of life. What do I need Life to do is next? messy, right? Life, life is, messy, is messy, right? The world of self-compassion, we ask the question, the quintessential question is what do I need right now? Right? We're really good at asking everybody else, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? So what a gift for our kids to see us model, like in this moment, I need to take care of myself. And it doesn't have to be, again, you know, huge and crazy. You know, you're in a classroom and Johnny's going to tear across the room. You can't be like, oh, what do I need right now? I need a massage. Kids, I'm leaving. I need to go practice self-care. I'm out for an <laughs> hour, right? This is, this is not what we know. That's what we think we need. In the moment, we just need to be like, how do I take a deep breath? How do I... How do I not get so caught up in my own stress response that I can navigate this moment right here? And then maybe this afternoon, I'll go get a massage later when I think yeah, I need it, right? right, yeah, right. But we can't do that as teachers, right? We're making, we have to be present with our kids. And so those, those, those micro moments of pausing modeling, if Johnny's throwing a chair across the room and we're sitting there, we freak out, our kids are going to freak out. If we have, and this is a, this is trauma-informed, how are we aware of, you know, holding ourselves so we can hold others? How are we staying present and not getting our own stress response out of, of whack? And we know we're sitting in a world where we're in a low-grade stress response all the time. We're all sitting just nearing this like explosion state of, of mm -hmm. overwhelm. Our cortisol, our adrenaline is high. And so we are having to find ways in our world to really navigate this um, opposite of stress response, our parasympathetic system and self-compassion is the antidote to that. It's this like warming towards ourselves so we can meet each and every moment with a tendency to care and connection, which is then going to build, you know, connections with their kids. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love all that. I, 
I have found myself as an educator using comedy and sarcasm to try to cope, but I found that that kind of masked things. And one of the things I practiced with reading your book and doing the course with you, um, which, you know, just so listeners know, I'll be able to, I'll put the links to all of these things in the notes. And the one beautiful thing about your course is you you can just, you can do it on your own. You know, it doesn't have to be live in front of you. I think I did a couple with you and some on my own, but back to my classroom, what I found myself is just stepping out of the room and just taking a breath. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I actually stopped and went, if I am trying to model this for students, it's okay if I just kind of turn away either in the classroom or just take a moment and actually tell my students I just close my eyes. I put my finger up and go, I just mean a moment. And I take a deep breath, right? And then they they kind of wonder like, what is she doing? <laughs> you know, I get this look. I have on my wall, one of my favorite ones is, it's called the self-compassion break. And you present this, this different language. And I have it on the wall. And I tell my students, I have this on the wall because I'm actually, it's for me. Mm -hmm. And if I, and, but you're welcome to do it if, you know, something happens and they feel overwhelmed and we need to do it together. And that's just, I put my hand on my heart and the hand on my belly. And I say, this is stressful. I'm not alone. May I be strong. And mm -hmm. now I have it. And it's just so powerful, right? It's just, again, I'm going to say, use the word light. I have it now. I have it in my office. I made a color copy of the words and I put it underneath um, uh, something in my daughter's room. She's, you know, 19. And it's just that, that it's a grounding, right? It just, yeah. when things are overwhelmed and it's whether or not I feel overwhelmed with something that's happened in the previous class and I'm running in and I just, oh, just need to take a breath. And sometimes I'll just say, I need to take a breath. Give me a second. Does anybody else need to take a breath? We can all just take a breath together. You know, well, I love all this. Talk yeah, about what, it, right? I was going to say, what you're doing is you're giving permission for students to know that this is a normal practice. Mm -hmm. So we're normalizing slowing down rather than like, let's just keep pushing through. And most suffering happens because we just keep pushing. And so, you know, what you're accessing is a whole bunch of different practices. One, you know, putting your hand on your heart and your belly, this is actually a warming practice called soothing or supportive touch. And we forget that we have access to it, but it actually is one of the first things that we can do to access our calming nervous system. You know, we hold our babies, we rock them, we hold them tenderly. We forget we can use that to ourselves. A hand to our heart intentionally to offer warmth. It's just like, you know, meeting ourselves with warmth just so, so gently. So even just doing that is... When I first heard it, I was like, I'm never going to do that. It's the number one practice I use more than ever. I walk around with my hand on my heart all the time. Every time I get a little stressed, it's like, okay, dear one, just remember you have access to like care. And it's 30 seconds. It's it 30 seconds. seconds. Right? I haven't, so short. I haven't bought, you know, I'm not spending $1,000 on yoga classes and, and apps yeah. and things like that. It's 30 seconds, yeah. right? So that's a beautiful, beautiful access practice to start right away is just soothing or supportive touch. And it can be on your hand, on your heart, it can, you know, holding your cheek and, you know, you taking your palm to your cheek and just meeting yourself that way. It's just big. It's this like, how would you show love? You can hold your old hand. Sometimes with rocks. You know, it can be going for a walk. We have like five seconds to three hours if you want to go for a walk. It's soothing and supportive. So that's the first access. The other thing you're talking about, the self-compassion break, I love because 
it's such talk about that moment of stress in the classroom when we need to access it. This is the difference between what I call self-care and self-compassion. Self-care is often what we do outside of the job um, or the action of compassion. So behavioral self-compassion is, is self-care. It's what do we do to support ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally when we ask ourselves that question, what do I need? Like we were talking about before, sometimes you just can't walk out of your classroom. The self-compassion break is actually um, integrates those three components of self-compassion. This is stressful, you said. Well, that's mindfulness. It's just like, okay, I'm aware that it's stressful. I'm actually paying attention enough to recognize like this moment is hard. So it could be, this is stressful, or this is this is a moment of suffering, or man, it's hard. Or you can simply just say like, ouch, oof, right? Like mm-hmm. we just remember to add that, that awareness. And then your next line, which I love, you said, I'm not alone. Well, this is common humanity, right? This is, mm-hmm. a, this is awareness like, hey, okay, other people feel like just like me, or Others would feel like me in this moment, or this is what it's like to be a person who's struggling. Like there's all these different lines we can use. And I love how you, you brought in that one, which many of us feel when we're struggling or suffering, we feel very isolated. And so I'm not alone. What a gift to ourselves and for other people to recognize other people feel just like me. Mm-hmm. And then the, your last one, like, may I be strong is what you said. You know, may I find my strength. And, well, that's fierce. That's fierce compassion. This is loving kindness. It could sound like, may I be strong. It could be like, may I meet myself with kindness. May I rest in love. May I be gentle with myself. May I know I'm enough. May I, may I, and it doesn't even have to say may I. It could just be like, trust your one. Or it could just be like, what do I really need right now? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I love how you've taken those three and you've modeled them for your students, for your children, for yourself. And, and I think what you're finding is that, that, link to the practice of self-compassion which is how do I meet myself in a moment when it's hard well here's I, you know few words great I often say to people even put the question what do I need right now up mm. everywhere yeah. put it everywhere so because we're not practiced answering it and generally when we quickly answer it it's like what do I need right now a glass of wine and a bag of chips sounds really good right but mostly when we ask it and we say but what do I really need you know, sometimes it's, I need to take myself out for a walk because my day's been so stressful. I need to let it go, or I need to snuggle my children, or I need to have that long bath. This is where the practice of self-care done intentionally to relieve suffering becomes a self-compassionate practice. Mm-hmm. Cause then you're going to really care for yourself because you deserve it, because you're giving yourself permission, because you're answering that question. What do I need to show up tomorrow? What do I need to be able to continue to do this hard work? How do I, how do I keep going? Because I want to, because I love this work and it's hard. So what am so I going to do to make sure I can do yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it really is exactly what I'm trying to do with this podcast. And that's why it's called Embrace mm. the Messy. And it's what you're saying, you know, is, is we're sitting with the messy, we're being mindful of the messy, <laughs> And then we're being, we're giving ourselves grace when Mm -hmm. life gets messy. And speaking of, of embracing the messy and messy, beautiful, Mm -hmm. when you and I met last year, you told me that you had decided to take the year off and Mm -hmm. do this wonderful work with educators full-time. So you took that, you know, a little break from 
from um, your your counseling position at a school. What was that like? To how has this last year been? And what what's going on with you now for next year? What's happening? It was terrifying and thrilling all at once. I right? You know, as educator, I, I've been going to school every September. So this is what we do, and and um, there's safety in it. And it was in there was a lot of you know perspectives of the people in my world being like, how can you step out? How do you leave the safety net of education? This is what you know. Um, and so it was terrifying. And what I realized was there are a lot of amazing houses out there. I could be replaced in that work. What I wanted to do is continue to share this work. And my voice was important in a different arena, right? Mm. Like where can I show up and continue to make a difference? And what I've learned is that there are lots of people who can do amazing work with kids. I love personally, I love to work with the educators, the leaders, the people who work with the kids. And I love working with kids. I spent 20 years in education. I love kids. I went into education because I love kids. But what I've learned over time is I love holding the people who hold the kids, right? And so how do I make the space more for that? I had to, I had to be really courageous and, and bold and say, I'm going to try something different and step out of, of what we know. And so um, I did that. I've spent a year traveling, speaking, working, running courses, engaging in different forms. And um, I'm continuing to do that. I'm, I'm not going back to school in September. I had to make the decision. It was really difficult, but I'm also sitting now in a new position. I'm the uh, director of education or the education director for the Center for Self-Compassion. It's a worldwide organization where I get oh, to congratulations. I, thank you. So I'm, I'm spreading self-compassion globally now on a global scale um and but educators have still my heart so um I do that part-time and then the rest of my days are engaging with educators leaders groups that can continue to spread this out I'm a big believer that you know most people come to my workshops to say like how do I take this to kids and I want to continue yeah. to show us how to model it you know like there's a lot of people out there talking about what we need and what we do and there's the headpiece my goal is how do we move from knowing to feeling, embodying, mm. and experiencing? And so this isn't something that's done in a one-hour workshop. It's not even done in a six-week course like you did with me. Because as you've learned, you can do it. You can get the practices. It's an ongoing experience. It's an ongoing lifetime practice. And so my goal is to continue to build that community of educators everywhere, learning to move from their head to their heart and embodying it with the care that they deserve and the permission that they get to prioritize their own peace. Mm. Would you share a short mindfulness practice so we can practice self-care? And of course, listeners, if you're driving, you won't be maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe not be doing this while you're driving you can or do it while cycling you're driving. or running. Oh, this is a good this is one for it all. Okay. Take us. I through. think the thing that we need to remember is that, you know, when we're practicing mindfulness, it doesn't have to be eyes closed, drop in. It's a, it's an invitation to just notice. So if you'd like to close your eyes and settle in and um, find some ease in your body, you're welcome to close your eyes. You could lower your gaze. So you take a moment. If you're driving, walking, biking, really be intentional with what's around you. You know, let your gaze be soft while you're still paying attention to what you're, what you're doing. And then allow yourself permission to just settle into this human body. 
So take a moment and lengthen through your neck and drop your shoulders. Take a breath and soften behind your eyes and through your jaw. Take a moment to let your breath extend the length of your spine. You might even notice you're sitting up a little bit straighter. Take a moment to let your hips find a sense of ease, whether you're walking, sitting, just notice the softening that comes with that. Take a moment to just acknowledge the heaviness, the weightedness of your legs all the way down to the bottom of your feet. This human body exists and it holds and carries us all the time through all of our days from our little toes that help us balance to the top of our head. Just allowing a few big breaths to fill up this human frame. And take a moment to notice as you're doing this, if there's any discomfort, anything that's challenging or, or tight or, or sort of niggling. And if it feels right, you might even want to take your hand and just place it upon that part. Maybe your neck is tight, give it a rub. Don't have to ignore it, but actually turn toward it with a, a gentleness. Your tummy is sore, just holding it. Got a tight knee, just wrap your hands around it. And see what it's like to meet a little bit of discomfort with the invitation to warmth. Not trying to change it or fix it. Even if something feels broken, it's just the way it's meant to be right now. And it's part of the healing process. So seeing if we can just let it be. And at any point as I'm speaking, you find your mind running off into stories or thinking or checklists or to-dos. You just smile and say like, yep, this is how my busy brain works. I do. And if that's the way, the way it is, just take another big deep breath and notice how you can find an anchoring in your body. It might be paying attention to your feet or your seat, or it might just be taking a big deep breath in, or it might even just be listening to my voice, coming back to hearing the words. This re-turn or re-inviting ourselves back to this moment. And then finally, seeing if there is a word or two or phrase just like Shannon shared earlier that something that reminds you that you will be okay. Maybe it's a phrase or word that you just need to hear right now. Something like, May I know my own strength, or may I know I'm enough, or you've got this, or we can do hard things, or simply maybe just the word trust. Trust in yourself, trust in this moment.
And noticing how that feels too, when you give yourself these few gentle words. Taking one more big deep breath and just acknowledging however you're feeling right now is just the way you're meant to be. And how you're showing up is just as you are. Thanks for practicing with me. Ooh, I love that. Um, elevator pitch. Let's end very quickly. I want to be very mindful of your time. Mm. So elevator pitch is what I give all my guests. I So an educator, you're on, say, the third floor of an elevator. Another educator gets on. They press six. You've got three floors to try to convince them that, you know, mindfulness and self-compassion is a way to embrace the messy. What would you mm. say to them? Well, first of all, I would say that there's no convincing. It's just an invitation. And the work that I do is an ongoing practice to acknowledging and giving ourselves permission to be just as we are, that there's no changing, shifting that that comes with because we accept ourselves and then we can grow. And that the practice is simply about noticing what's around us and meeting it with the tenderness or fierceness that is needed to embrace all of those messy days and the good ones that come in education because both can coexist. Thank you so much, Lisa Bayless. Your work oh, is so a gift. Welcome. Your work is a gift. You are a gift. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. It was an honor to be here and keep doing this great work, Shannon. I'm so grateful that you are. Thank you for listening to the Embrace the Messy podcast. This podcast was produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Tanay First Nation. I feel truly blessed to be able to live, work, and play here. I'd love to hear from all of my listeners. If you are inspired by someone who embraces the messy and would like me to interview them on the podcast, or you have feedback about an episode, send me an email at embrace the messy podcast at gmail.com don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode this is shannon shinkle signing off reminding you to embrace the messy bye